And this is the third time you're hearing this introduction and I make no apologies. Uh, Paul writes in Corinthians and he says that we all with unveiled faces by beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory unto the next. And this is all done by his spirit. So, saints, that is my job. That is my task this morning to so present Jesus Christ before you that you see him and you see him alone. And that by seeing Jesus Christ, you yourself are changed and transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, we need you. We need you to open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our hands. We want to see Jesus. We need to hear from him. If we do not hear from him, oh Lord, what will we do? Be pleased in this time, we ask. In Christ's name, amen and amen. Little Susan was inquiring about the great lion Aslan and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was just a man. Is he quite safe? I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Who said anything about safe? He isn't safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. As we work our way through the Gospel of Luke, this is what we have seen. We've seen time and time again. This is what we'll see this morning. Christ isn't safe, but he's good. To the demons in the, the book of Luke who think they're actually running something, they're going to find out rather quickly just how unsafe our Savior really is. To the adversary who thinks he runs anything, he's going to find out quickly just how unsafe our Savior truly is. To the Pharisees who would place undue burdens upon the people and reject broken people, they're going to find out just how unsafe our Savior is. To the people who reject the gospel, who reject Christ, who don't answer correctly the question, who do you say I am? They're going to find out just how unsafe our Savior is. Oh, but to those who rest in Jesus Christ to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, to those who trust Jesus Christ, they're going to find out that he isn't safe, but he's so good. In Gospel City, he is the king. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Luke chapter 9, this a.m. Luke chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9, and I'll be reading the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Summoning the twelve, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. 
Take nothing for the road, he said. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some had said that John had been raised from the dead. Some that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said. But who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. Before we even step too many feet into our text for this morning, we figure out rather quickly that Jesus Christ is in control. That Jesus Christ is sovereign. We look at verse 1 and we hear the words of Mr. Beaver echoing in our ears that Christ is king. Because verse 1 tells us, summoning the 12, he gave them authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Summoning the 12. I love how the Oxford English Dictionary defines the word summon. It says, authoritatively call on someone to be present. The king is calling his disciples. And saints, when the king calls, it's not an option. But notice in the text how the authority of Christ keeps trickling down. He authoritatively calls his disciples and then he gives them authority to carry out what he is calling them to do. In other words, Christ isn't telling them or calling them to something that he isn't able to fulfill in them. In other words, Christ's calling is a promise that he will do what he said he's going to do. In other words, Christ is not going to call his people to something that he is not going to enable them to do. Allow me to make a bridge from then to today. If Christ calls us to something that we look at that is way above our pay grade, that should be a moment for us to rejoice because what Christ is calling us to is that he's inviting us to front row seats to behold what he is getting ready to do in us. So whenever Christ calls and we're like, Lord, wow, I don't know if I can do that. That's so far above me. We're like, yes, Lord, please do that because we know you're getting ready to act and act triumphantly. Every calling of Christ, brothers and sisters, is inextricably tied to a promise. Every calling is tied to a promise. So the calling in the Gospels to go and make disciples of all nations is tied to the promise, Lo, I will be with you always. Every calling is tied to a promise. The calling in 1 John to kill sin and to not sin is tied to the promise that if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The calling in the scriptures to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is tied to the promise for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Every calling is tied to a promise. 
This is why Augustine cried out that early saint called out, Lord, command what you will, but do what you command. Lord, tell us to do anything, but Lord, you know we need your help in doing it. So he summons them. He calls the 12, and then he gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Two observations about the disciples receiving this power and authority over all demons. First observation is this. Let us not begin to think, brothers and sisters, that there is some cosmic power struggle between Satan and his demons and Christ the Lord. Let us not begin to think that there's some epic game of tug of war going on and we're anxiously waiting on our seats to behold who is going to get the upper hand. No, brothers and sisters, Christ is king and it's not even close. The book of Revelation gives this glorious example of when when Christ lets Satan free and Satan goes over the hill and he's amassing this great army to himself and he has all this weaponry and you're reading the book of Revelation. You're like, man, this is getting ready to be an epic battle. Satan and all his minions, all his power, and then out of nowhere, fire rains down from heaven and destroys Satan and all his people. It's not even close. You read the scripture, since Satan fell, he has been destroying lives for centuries. But saints with just a few moments on Calvary and a few days in the grave, his head is crushed. We we, we know this, don't we? We understand this empirically, right? We have been under the rule of the prince of the power of the air for years. And with just a simple gospel presentation, all Satan's authority in our life is lost. Christ has won. He is winning and he will win. And saints, it's not even close. He summons them. Second observation about this point in Luke chapter 9. Christ has so much power and authority, he can even put the B team in the game and the demons still respect his word. The B team, of course, being the disciples and by illustration, the B team being us. Sorry, y'all, we didn't didn't make varsity. We on the B team. That's how much power he has that even when his disciples are facing the demons, they tremble at the name of Jesus Christ. It is the illustration of the younger brother who's facing the bully, right? He's standing there in front of the bully and the bully is trembling and the younger brother's like, man, the the bully must have seen me in the gym last week hitting the weights. The bully is trembling, the bully must have known I didn't come to play, but the little brother doesn't know that the big brother is standing behind him and that's all the bully sees. Whenever we do anything from Jesus Christ, as the disciples went out to the demons, the demons like, I see his disciples, but they got Jesus Christ behind them. And whatever he says, it goes. Summoning them. It's a big difference. I have four little ones, four kids, and it's a big difference when one of my kids tries to tell another one of my kids authoritatively something to do. My other kid is looking at them like, who are you to tell me anything? But it's a different ball game when one of my kids goes to another one of my kids and they begin the command like this, daddy said. (laughs) 
This is what we do. We go out to the world. Disciples go out to the world. It's like, it's not us. It's in the name of Jesus that the authority lies and the authority rests. Christ is in control. And as Luke is getting ready to expound for us, since Christ is in control, he can be trusted with our message. That is, we can trust Christ to give us a message to proclaim. Notice in verse 2. He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sent his disciples to the mission field and he told them to carry high the banner that this is God's kingdom. And underneath those words, God's kingdom, on the banner, sort of in smaller print, is written, I don't know what you heard or what you thought you knew, but God is reigning. Verse 2 tells them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. These two commands to tie directly back to verse 1. The same command is reiterated. Power and authority over all demons and all diseases. In other words, brothers and sisters, Christ controls demons and diseases. Christ controls what we see spiritually and what we see physically. Christ controls everything. He may allow those things to piddle and paddle, but let us not come to the conclusion that somehow Jesus Christ has loosed the reins. He has not. He is in control. And he isn't safe, but he's good. And the good part about all of this, as we take a couple of steps back, the good part about all of this is that Christ takes what he has been doing and hands it over to this ragtag group of disciples. Christ takes perfection and he places it into the hands of imperfection. That should cause us to stand back and marvel and rejoice that Christ would entrust anything to anyone else, (laughs) namely his people, that these unrighteous lips can extol the praises of a righteous God, that perfection can speak, and he would hand it over to imperfection, and now we're brought into the work that God would place these rich treasures into jars of clay wonder of wonders. Christ is in control. And since he's in control, he can be trusted with the message. But also, brothers and sisters, we can trust Christ with our lives since he is in control. Verses 3 through 5 can be summarized like this. It is a wholehearted dependence on God. When even the barest of necessities are not stockpiled. Everything about this mission says that the disciples have to depend on God and depend on God alone. If God isn't going to provide it, I don't know how it's going to be provided. But notice what he tells them to leave behind. The first thing he says, disciples, that staff that you're holding in your hand, you need to leave that staff behind. When you read the Old Testament, oftentimes when when God will sort of delegate his power to men, the staff was sort of the sign of that authority and power. So if you look in Numbers chapter 17, when God selects Aaron 
he causes his staff to bud and produce almonds. More prominently, you remember Moses and Pharaoh, right? It was the staff in Moses' hand that sort of quintessentially manifested the power and authority of God. But here in Luke chapter 9, we have the God-man telling his disciples to do away with that symbol of authority. Why? Why? Beloved, it's because the power and authority rest in Christ and his word. Not what has historically been thought of as authoritative. It rests in Christ and his word alone. Allow me to build a bridge from then till today. It is a recipe for disaster when any man or woman, whomever they are, seeks to authoritatively say anything or amass authority to themselves other than standing firm-footed on the word of God. He's giving it to his disciples. All authority. Next, he tells them to leave that traveling bag behind. Traveling bag in this day was simply a bag that these men used to carry their possessions. My wife made fun of me so badly a couple of months ago because I told her I wanted to buy a fanny pack. Right? Or, or some people call it a man purse, which is a purse. I told her, I said, babe, I'm buying a fanny pack or a purse. And she made fun of me so bad. But I'm, I'm looking at Luke chapter 9, and I'm seeing that a fanny pack is biblical. <laughs> but they didn't need a purse. Because Christ is telling them to rely on him, and he will provide their daily bread. Because the next thing he told them to leave behind is their bread. That's an amazing command. And it sort of echoes out what Christ said over in Matthew chapter 6. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he gathers us around and he takes us on a field trip outside. And he says, you see the birds of the sky? They neither reap nor sow nor gather into barns, yet their heavenly Father takes care of them. Aren't you worth more than them? Oh, if I can sing like Micah or Savannah, I would break out into that song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. The lyrics of that song say, When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches, he watches me. Leave it behind, Christ tells him. Also, he says, leave the money behind. A lot of folks have heard the passage of Scripture that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? We've heard that text before, but it is, it is couched in a broader text that's talking about money because in Hebrews chapter 13, it says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Not only that, in the case the disciples were thinking about changing clothes halfway through the journey, Christ said, leave that extra shirt at home. 
Again, Christ takes his disciples on a field trip to show them exactly what he's talking about and sort of echoes in Matthew chapter 6, 27, where it says, and, and why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They neither labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field that grows one day and is thrown into the furnace the next, how will he care for you, oh, you of little faith? Christ says. In other words, verses 3 through 5 can be summarized by Matthew 25, when the salty, anybody know who salty is? The singing songbook? Yeah, we got some live, we got some righteous people who know who salty is. The singing songbook, he put those words into a chorus. And since my oldest son was born, we sing this song to him every night before he goes to bed. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You know that song? Yeah. My kids love my singing. I don't care if you guys don't. They love it. <laughs> and every night we sing that song, it sort of convicts me at the core because I know that some days I've spent the majority of the day seeking everything else but the kingdom of God. In my heart of hearts, I've sort of reversed the song to say, seek ye first all these things and God will be added unto you. But folks, that's not how it works. Because all those things are not the author and provider of God. But God is definitely the author and provider of all those things. So he sends them out and says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And he's reminding them that he is in control. And since he is in control, we can trust him with our lives. But not only can we trust him with our lives, saints, we can trust him with our contentment. Did you catch that in verse 4? It says, when you go into a house, stay there and leave from there. In other words, don't get bored or tired of the provision that I have provided for you. This is a scary reminder, brothers. This is a scary reminder that the disciples were getting ready to go out on this journey. And they had nothing. They left everything behind. And yet Christ still has to remind them, when I provide something for you, don't get tired of it. Isn't that amazing? So I built this bridge again from then to today. When was the last time we asked or begged God for something or someone? And not three seconds after God has provided it, knowing all things, we go back to God and say, God, I'm sort, of, I'm sort of bored with this. It doesn't really meet my specifications. So it reminds them, you go to that house and you stay in that house. There's a quote by A.W. Pink that says this, Satan is ever seeking to inject that poison into our hearts to distrust God's goodness especially in connection with his commandments. That is what really lies behind all evil, lusting, and disobedience, a discontent with our position and portion, a craving from something which God has wisely held from us. Reject any suggestion that God is unduly severe with you. 
Resist with the utmost abhorrence anything that causes you to doubt God's love and his loving kindness towards you. Allow nothing to make you question the father's love for his child. Satan sort of whispers in our ear. Christ reminds them when I provide, be content with that. And since he isn't safe, but he's good, we can trust God with our contentment. Not only that, but in the text, we can trust Christ even when we're being rejected. The man of rejection warns his disciples about rejection in verse 5. You're going to enter into a town. Some of them are going to reject you. When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Let me make one observation about this, this shaking off of dust. Christ makes this, this point, and he makes the point after the fact. Here's what I mean by that. It is implied in the text that the disciples at least went into the town and tried to bring the kingdom of God into the town. And once they did that and rejected, then they can leave the town. What am I saying? I'm saying is that we, are, we should never be in a position to predetermine who is going to accept the gospel and who is not going to accept the gospel. Christ has delegated some of his authority, but not all of it. He is still God and we are not. Let us be surprised by who accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because brothers and sisters, my parents in the room, I know they were surprised (laughs) when God changed my heart. We can trust them even when we're rejected but we also can trust him with our obedience. Did you catch that in verse six? Did you notice that? Christ told them to go to these random towns and villages. Don't take nothing with you. Leave everything behind. Everything is like everything plus some. Leave everything behind. Don't even take a shirt with you. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, some of those towns are probably going to reject you. you this, is a, this is a mission calling. Can you imagine that? And he, do you notice what happened in verse 6? These sweet four words. So they went out. It's so beautiful. No hesitation. No analysis, no second-guessing day went out. Brothers and sisters, may this be the posture of our hearts before Christ. May we have such reliance and trust in him that he is a God who is well-proven, that he may call us to uncomfortable situations and circumstances, but may it be written of us so they went out. And then if I can jump ahead to verse 10, that's not my text, but I'm just still a couple of words from verse 10. Another four words that so beautifully ring from the pages. Did you catch that in verse 10? When the disciples returned. What that means simply is that Christ is able to keep you where he calls you. Because he's in control. We can trust him with all these things. We can even trust him with our enemies. 
It says in Luke chapter 9, I say enemies because Herod is the same one who beheaded John the Baptist. You read about that in verse 9. Now, that's, that is the very definition of an enemy. If you're trying to figure out if somebody is your enemy or not, you have to ask yourself the question, are they trying to chop off my head? If the answer is yes, it's a, probably a pretty good idea that they don't like you too much. But notice how verses 1 through 9 is bookended by these types of power. Verse 1 tells us of the true, original, eternal power in Jesus Christ. Verse 7 tells us about this foe, this fake, this given power. What Christ says about Pilate is the same thing he says about Herod. It's the same thing he says about all his enemies. The only authority you have is the authority that I give to you. Enemies of the cross, no matter their position or power, it's not like they're fighting an equal power opposite war with Jesus Christ. They're just fighting a losing battle. And even this enemy, this Herod, he, he asked a question that has been ringing out in the gospel of Luke since the beginning. Who is this guy? Who is this man? A couple of observations about this last point. If you're a note taker, that's like my 45th point you're writing down right now. A couple of observations. First, did you notice who the people thought Jesus Christ is? Some said John the Baptist. Some said Elijah. Some said the ancient prophets. There was something, beloved, there was something about Jesus that reminded them of what they had seen before that reminded them of something they read somewhere in the Old Testament scriptures. Because all these men they mentioned, they're pointing to Jesus Christ. There was something about Christ that looked so familiar. And I imagine the reason it looked familiar is because everybody in all of scripture is pointing to Jesus Christ. This is what Christ tells the two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. He tells them, look, Moses and all the prophets and all the scripture, they're talking about me. There's a problem, saints, when we don't see the scriptures in Christ or when we don't see Christ in the scriptures. He looks so familiar. Second observation. Seeing Christ and submitting to Christ are worlds apart. Seeing Jesus and trusting Jesus are worlds apart. We see that here in Luke chapter 9. Here, he, oh, he wanted to see Jesus. And we read later on in Luke chapter 23, it records for us the reason why Herod wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to, Jesus to sing a song for him and dance for him and perform a miracle for him. So he kept walking up to Jesus, asking him a question. And Luke so brilliantly records for us, Jesus didn't even respond to Herod. Because Herod figured out what all men figure out one day is that Christ is not a puppet. He is king. Safe? Is it quite safe, Susan said? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
Who said anything about being safe? Of course he is not safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. And brothers and sisters, since Christ is this good king, he can be trusted with our lives. He can be trusted when we're rejected. He can be trusted with our contentment. He can be trusted with everything. And saints, I say, hear me well. Isn't it so sweet to trust in Jesus? Would you pray with me? Oh, for faith to trust you more. You are worthy worthy of our trust, our faith, our adoration. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to trust you. We pray these things in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.